Hi there, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that tells the stories of women with interesting, unusual, and inspiring careers with me, Naomi Mella. We're taking a little departure from the normal format of the show today. As a friend recently pointed out to me that I had never really introduced myself as part of this show and that it might be a good idea to record a brief episode about my own career experiences and motivations as part of the podcast series. Normal service will be resumed next week. Don't worry. I posted on Instagram a couple of weeks ago that I am still adjusting to putting myself out there as part of the process of building this podcast. I hate having my photo taken and I'm generally more interested in hearing about the lives of others than I am talking about myself, which is something I really need to get over. So on that note, here we go. I've mentioned once or twice, and you might have gleaned from Cal Major's episode if you've listened to that, that I am a veterinary surgeon by training and still work full time in a couple of different roles. Being a vet was what I had wanted to do for pretty much my entire life. My mom tells a story about when I was three years old that I held a lamb at a farm when we were on holiday and loudly announced to the world that I was going to be a vet. I think my parents and everyone else thought that I would grow out of this idea, but I was incredibly fixated on this one career and I put all my teenage energies into getting the work experience and grades that I needed to apply to vet school. I worked really hard and never gave any consideration to an alternative career at all until one point when I was 17, just a couple of months before university applications were due in, I decided that actually what I wanted to study was English literature, obviously. I was doing The Handmaid's Tale and Measure for Measure as part of my English A-level, two texts that have had a recent resurgence and are really pertinent in 21st century gender politics, just in case you're interested. And I decided that books instead of animals were for me. The precise moment I made this announcement is still etched in my memory as my dad's face was a picture. I think both my parents were probably having a massive mental face plant at that point, as they'd spent five years of their life driving me to work experience placements, helping me with relevant homework, and in preparing my university application. But to their credit, they rallied, said that they would support me in any decision I made, and offered to drive me to a few further university campuses to look round. I owe everything in my life to my parents and I am very aware that without their support it is highly unlikely that I would have done what I have. The truth is that in the end, age 17, I was too scared and felt I was too far down the road of heading to vet school to change my mind. So after a brief phase, as my teachers referred to it, I settled on veterinary science and renewed my determination to continue towards my initial goal. I often say when I talk to prospective vet students that I was lucky to get a choice of offers from several veterinary colleges. The reality was that I wanted it so badly and had put so much hard work in that I had no doubt in my mind that I would get in. Reflecting back on that recently, I haven't had that kind of certainty about anything in my career since and I really miss it. It is much easier to achieve something when you have a clear goal in mind, a fixed endpoint, and a hunger to get there. I wanted to prove everyone wrong who said it couldn't be done, that there were over 2,000 applicants for 70 places, that getting into vet school was so hard, blah, 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 blah. With the naivety of youth, I just expected that one of those places would be for me. I'm not sure at what point we tend to become more fearful in life, or when the unshakable feeling I had when I was 18 that the world was my oyster, I would be happy doing anything, and that I would be the best, most successful, happiest vet on earth was finally quelled. I've had a few jobs now and I'm not afraid of change, 
but perhaps it's the looming spectre of monthly mortgage repayments or the lifestyle you become used to when you earn a good living that throws everything into the sharp relief that we call reality. For any American listeners out there, we do vet school slightly differently to you guys. You don't do an undergraduate degree, then continue with a postgraduate veterinary qualification. You go in post-school at 18 in my case, and you come out five years later a qualified veterinarian. For the record, I hated it to begin with, and I told my parents I wanted to change to medicine and become a doctor at that point. I realised with hindsight that when the going got a bit tough and I started to waver that I often looked for new things to do, and this has persisted later in my career. It's only now that I recognise this that I can do something about it. Sometimes it's good to jump, and it's the right decision to make a change, and sometimes you have to stick with what you're doing. On that occasion, I stuck with it for the second time, and eventually I fell in love with my university education. The one thing that having a profession allows you is the capacity to travel once you've got your qualifications, and I'm grateful that I was blessed with sufficient brain power to get through my exams and graduate from vet school. In another of my slightly crazy schemes, I then set off for a tiny Pacific island and lived and worked there for five months for my first job. I mentioned at the start of my conversation with Amelia and Saba that, like Amelia, I tend to act first and think later, (laughs) and my early career was a bit of a classic example of that. All I knew was that everyone graduates vet school in the UK in June, and that six to seven hundred people would all be job hunting at the same time. Having been laser-focused on getting to vet school, I then had no preferences about what speciality I wanted to follow, unlike others, so I decided to go abroad. Other than that, I picked the Cook Islands because there was an excellent climate, the scuba diving was pretty good, the people were really friendly and they spoke English, which I thought might make things easier when I was starting out in work. I expected to go and neuter a few street dogs and cats and generally have a pretty cushy time. What eventually happened was that I ended up, age 23, running a very busy clinic with a girl I'd never met before, who also had the sum total of zero experience to complement my zero experience. We learned surgery out of a textbook, operated in some really suboptimal conditions compared to the smart, sterilised theatres we'd had at university, and we generally muddled along on a wing and a prayer. Looking back on it now, I laugh at how mad the situation was but it was the making of me in so many ways. There were times of great adversity, tears, and the knowledge that I would never attempt what I was about to do back in England. No way. But the nearest veterinary surgery was 3,000 miles away in New Zealand, and it was our best efforts or nothing. This is incredibly liberating in many ways, and led me to develop skills much more quickly than some of my counterparts back home, more out of force than desire at times. So job hunting was fairly rapid when I arrived back, and I definitely increased my confidence over the next year or two. During my 20s, I worked in various vet practices in the UK. I took another big jump and headed off to Australia for a few years, to a place I knew nothing about but thought the job sounded good, and developed a specialism in horses. Much of my 20s involved a degree of wanderlust, I guess, and I didn't really settle to a job for too long. I stayed in Australia for two and a half years, but this was the longest role I kept in that time. I was always looking for the next best thing, looking to move on and up, and I felt quite conflicted at the notion that older generations repeated to me that you mustn't leave a job before you've been there for a year. I think this idea is gradually becoming eroded by people of my age and younger, 
particularly if you have a good reason why and can justify your career moves. And I hope that the perception of unreliability associated with multiple short-term jobs and that you, quotes can't settle to anything will soon be recognised as the fallacy it is in some cases. I was fortunate that I moved jobs generally via word of mouth in the end. And this is something that I would emphasise to others, whatever your career. People want to work with you because they like you. Networking may seem like an arse, but getting to know people in a social fashion and building your reputation within your industry will likely help you in more ways than you might expect. Despite my parents' fear that I might never settle down, which was real, at 28, I moved to a job outside London and stayed there for five years, during which time I did a postgraduate qualification and became an experienced, competent vet. I would never have said that about myself until recently, Imposter syndrome reigns supreme in my head too. But I recently have learned to admit to myself and be proud of the skills I've developed, both clinical and non-clinical. Communication is the key to being a good veterinarian. You have to be able to explain complex scientific concepts to people in a way that is understandable and clear to help them make a sound clinical and financial decision. And I love to find a new analogy that explains something in such a way that you can see people going, aha, now I get it. I love meeting new people, and this has been a joy throughout much of my career. There are a few jobs in the world where you can go from Lord and Lady such and such, a Downton Abbey-esque pad in the morning, to spending the afternoon rescuing a horse with the fire brigade, or going to a gypsy camp and treating the horses of the travelling community. I've had the good fortune to meet some fantastic people so far, and have made lifelong friends of some of my clients. But there is a growing recognition in the caring professions about the phenomenon of compassion fatigue. This is by no means unique to vets, and it is described in doctors, nurses, care workers, and many more. People's pets are their life to them in some cases. The presence of a pet has so often comforted and sustained a person throughout the illness or death of a spouse or other family member. And the factors affecting a client's decision-making about their animal are often inextricably linked to grief, loss, or experience with their own family. I once had a 48-hour period where three women separately confessed to me that they had recently discovered their husband had been having an affair and that the stress of that situation had compounded their worry about their animal. One burst into tears with relief when I told her that her horse only had a minor problem that would resolve quickly and easily. People often say to me that putting down animals must be the hardest part of the job or that they couldn't be a vet because they couldn't euthanise an animal. Giving the injection is the straightforward part. The mental and emotional burden of supporting the client is more difficult, and it does take its toll. My record, in inverted commas, is six PTSs, or put-to-sleeps as we call them, in one day, of animals of various species, and it took me a while to get over the exhaustion. Equine vets in the UK provide 24-hour cover to their patients, and we don't work night shifts only. You work your day, you do your night on call, and then you come into work the following day and carry on. Time off in lieu is becoming the norm, but the fear of the on-call phone and the poor sleep patterns that so often occur when you are on duty are pretty rubbish. Like doctors, I must admit vets often drink and party pretty heavily, and I've had friends tell me before that they would get through a weekend on duty, then crack open a bottle of wine on a Monday night with relief that it's all over for another few weeks. That's not to say that the majority of us don't enjoy being vets. There are many rewarding, positive, and downright hilarious moments And I could make a whole other podcast on its own just regarding the comedy situations that have happened to myself and others. 
Most people are really grateful that you can help their animal. It's just that gratitude is often lost in the day-to-day busyness of life. Earlier this year, when my husband was offered a great new job, which required us to move house to an area where we knew nobody, it necessitated a little rethink about my career. I left a group of fantastic friends, a job that I really enjoyed with a great bunch of people and a supportive, generous boss with no idea what else I was going to do. If I'm honest, I felt quite conflicted about giving all this up. You may have gathered somewhat that I believe strongly in equality and feminism, and the idea of a woman moving to support a man's career is somewhat of an anathema to me, particularly when every career decision I had taken previously was about what was best for me. But life is about compromises. Despite the fact that several people did accuse me of giving up my feminist principles in this situation, the reality is that for you both to progress, it's give and take. This was a great opportunity for my husband, so this time it was my turn to compromise. There will be other times when my career takes priority, I am sure of that, and I've tried to use the situation positively to meet new people, explore new options, and try something different. So this year, I have set up my own company, adventurously named Naomi Mella Limited, and I now work part-time for myself, part-time at a couple of vet surgeries, and part-time in a corporate environment which is something I would never have expected for myself. I'm learning to prepare for meetings, dress for the office, such a good excuse to go shopping, and navigate the politics of a big organisation, all of which is so alien to me, given that I've spent the last 10 years of my life wearing jeans to work and trundling around the countryside in my truck. Whilst I haven't left my veterinary career behind by any means, I've had to diversify somewhat in the way I earn money and take the leap into new and different opportunities. I would credit a really amazing woman called Ebony Escalona in supporting hundreds of vets who are doing the same and looking to diversify their careers away from traditional general practice. Ebs runs an online platform for vets that gave me the confidence to develop what I guess would be referred to as a portfolio career these days. And although every week takes a significant degree of organisation, I literally have no idea what day it is half the time and I now have a colour-coded Google diary to make sure I'm in the right place at the right time, I am gradually finding a system that works for me. I'm learning the lessons of managing my workload as a freelancer. October was an epic fail on this front, as I booked in way too much work, was completely exhausted and never saw my husband. But this is all new to me. I need to learn to say no sometimes to create a work-life balance that suits me. And I'm making mistakes along the way, but that's okay. A friend once said to me that when you're doing something new, whatever it may be, fail early and fail cheaply. And I think this is good advice. Just to backtrack a little bit, I went to a brilliant girls school in Manchester and was really, really fortunate to benefit from a fantastic education there, where the self-belief that you could do whatever you wanted was never drummed into us in a sort of hothouse fashion. It just existed. Every year, you saw other girls go to Oxford and Cambridge or a host of other prestigious academic institutions play sport at elite levels, or gain a music scholarship to university. I've said before on the podcast that I'm a really firm believer that you can't be what you can't see. And what I saw day in, day out was a really diverse group of young women at a multicultural, multi-faith school with Orthodox Jews, Sikh and Hindu women, girls in hijab, going on to do whatever the hell they wanted. But so much of that drive was towards very traditional careers, And the head of sixth form at school recently told me that this year over a third of girls had applied for medicine at university. 
I was astonished, quite frankly. And it got me thinking. The few times I had a wobble about being a vet, both when I was younger and as I've got older, I had no clue what else I might like to do, which was a large part of the motivation behind launching this podcast. I would refer to myself as a dreamer, I guess. And there have been so many different jobs that I've thought, oh my goodness, that sounds amazing. Or wow, I would love to do that. When I was young, apart from being a vet, I also fancied being the new Kate AD. For those of you who don't know, she was the BBC's chief news correspondent for many years and the first woman to do so. And she was usually reporting from war zones and natural disasters or interviewing the leader of a country I'd barely heard of. I considered being the next David Attenborough, although let's face it, David Attenborough is utterly irreplaceable and will be a national treasure forevermore. And more latterly, I've thought about travel journalism, retraining as a gemologist, I love jewellery, taking a master's in wine or running a farming related business with my husband. I may still do one or other of those things in my life. After all, I've potentially got another 40 years of work ahead of me. But on reflection earlier this year, when, believe me, I did a lot of thinking about my career and those of other women, it struck me that what might have been helpful to me over the years would have been to have heard the experiences, good and bad, of those who have taken the road less travelled and succeeded. And so the idea for Smashing the Ceiling was born. I knew nothing about how to make a podcast, I learned how to record and edit from videos on YouTube, and started recording episodes in February this year. As with all things in my life, I dived in without a huge amount of preparation, and it has certainly been a learning curve. I seem to say this time and again, perhaps I should actually do some planning and preparation once in a while before launching into new product projects. But it doesn't seem to have worked out too badly for me so far, so maybe my impulsive nature ain't too bad after all. Some of the women I invited to speak on here, such as Barbara Natterson Horowitz and Uta Frith, were people I knew of through my own work or through that of my friends and family. Others I've happened upon online or have received recommendations. But each of them has done something a little different with their career. They haven't just followed the status quo, taken the easy road or done what has been expected of them. They have challenged expectation broken down barriers where necessary, and in many cases, played their own part in smashing the glass ceiling that undoubtedly still exists in many industries. I've really enjoyed the journey so far with this podcast, and I can't wait to bring you upcoming episodes of more fantastic women. Before anyone has a pop at me, believe me, I am fully aware of the privileges that have been afforded to me in my life. I'm incredibly lucky to have had the education that I did and be supported by the family that I have. I'm honest that I have not worked from the ground up. I've had huge advantages in my life and a massive step up the rungs of the career ladder. What I would like to do, though, is build a supportive network for women of any age to tap into when they hear about something that they're interested in. I've been amazed by the generosity of the people I've interviewed so far. And it is true that in most cases, people are motivated to help others rather than jealously consider them the competition. As Madeleine Albright, the former US Secretary of State, once said, there is a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. And believe me, I don't want to end up there. I'm mindful, however, that I want to use this platform to celebrate diversity. So you can expect a more varied group of women in the upcoming months. And I'm looking forward to sharing the experiences of those I chat to. In the meantime, thanks for listening. I say it often, but I can't say it enough, that I'm so thankful to have an audience for this podcast. Please continue to tell others about it, share posts online and advise others to follow us too if possible. 
We're at Smashing Ceiling on Twitter, at Smashing the Ceiling on Instagram, and just search Smashing the Ceiling on Facebook. That is quite enough of my ramblings for today, but we'll hopefully see you next week. <laughs>